0: Welcome to Buy The Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Pauldoyan. For today's episode, we're going to take a look at the global spirits industry and its intersection with the world of fine art. Now, we've had art adjacent episodes in the past. If you want to revisit one of those earlier episodes, in episode 23, we spoke about the aesthetics of wine labels with designer Chris Kelly. And then if you go all the way back to episode three, I spoke with Matt Tabor about translating a hospitality concept into a visual identity. Um, I want to give a special shout out to Matt for also designing the logo for this podcast. He did a great job with that. And big shout out to anyone that listened to those earlier episodes. Go back through and listen to them if you haven't. But let's get back to the present, the present day. Today's episode, we're chatting with Vadim Gregorian, a brand strategist in the spirits industry. Vadim previously served as the global director of creativity and luxury at Pernod Ricard, the parent company for Jameson, Gay, many, many more spirits, as well as wines like Perrier Jouet. Now, uh, while working for Pernod Ricard, Vadim oversaw Absolute Vodka's Art World collaborations and managed the go-to-market strategy for Pernod's tequila brands in France, Russia, all over Europe. Vadim has also helped launch a cryptocurrency platform called Lunu that helps luxury brands integrate new technologies into their e-commerce services. So he's got his hands in a lot of different pots, but more than anything, Vadim is a lover of art and a real bon vivant. Um, To that end, he was like drinking rosé and cooking saganaki when he Zoomed me from his Paris apartment in late September. So um, with that fantastic introduction, let's just get right into it. Here's Vadim. Also, in my um, very deep research, I came across a photo of him kissing Asia Argento. So we need to talk about that for sure. Uh, Here he is.
1: I have uh, some Armenian relatives, the cousin of my father uh, and their family that they all live there. They're probably related to me too then.
0: You know, I mean, there's only so many of us Armenians out here, so... Your cousin is my cousin. We're like the Targaryens in that way.
1: Their name is uh, not not like mine, it's Baba Yan.
0: Hard to pronounce an ending in I-A-N or Y-A-N and you're in good shape. So what have you been up to? What has your day consisted of?
1: In any case, September is crazy uh, and uh, as if everyone is waking up. So lots of calls, lots of uh, projects. And one which is super interesting is working on the context strategy for a little gem of whiskey that will be sold for at least one thousand pounds a bottle, which is uh, I will not give the name, uh, it's it's kind of interesting project. And they don't want, which is quite rare, they don't want to be kind of really targeting the usual collectors and a uh, whiskey and Who all. Who other than the usual collectors would buy a bottle that expensive, though? So that is that is the task. That is the task. Where where to find these people and how to find them and, and how to seduce them. So, yeah. it's, uh, well, so much
0: of the value proposition with like expensive whiskey, right, is the aging, like whether it's 18 years, 25 years, that's a big element. What are the other distinguishing factors there that can really sell a whiskey at that higher price point other than
1: age? Well, for me, this is, uh, philosophically speaking, talking about very tangible things such as age or rarity, physical rarity, uh, rather than the perception of rarity, is a little bit primitive, in the sense that humans are uh, symbolic beings, we value symbols, we give value to very intangible elements that cannot be calculated, cannot be uh, measured, and all of that. And I think that uh, oftentimes in marketing, people try to really work on a very cerebral level to explain uh, something like the more uh, age we have, the better it is, or something like this. But in reality, first of all, this is not true. So the uh, and I've been trying both whiskeys and cognacs all over. This is not always the case. And in fact, the curve is like this, so it goes up and down. Uh, For so listeners that... at home, you created a bell curve, right? So Absolutely, exactly like the grades at said <laughs> In any case, it, it, all this kind of uh, very uh, cerebral, pragmatic, or as the French would say, the uh, Cartesian approach, I think is total bullshit. We attach value to... Uh, much more visceral things. We attach value to much more uh, emotional things, and that is uh, that is really really important. I think that honestly, and without joking or even like without using your uh, fantastic podcast as a pretext, I would say that almost every business school should have the case study of uh, the fountain of Marcel Duchamp. For those who don't know, Marcel Duchamp is uh, One of the founding fathers of contemporary art, uh, this artist that is born in Normandy, the the place that is very dear to me and where my country house is. He moved from France to the U.S. and uh, he has proven... And shown to the world that the physicality doesn't mean anything. So he did the stunt. He basically uh, recontextualized the the pissoir or the uh, I don't know this kind of I don't know how the urinal, yeah, the urinal exactly. And uh, all of a sudden, I like the French
0: name for it, a pissoir. Yeah, that's a way better name than that, what we have in the U.S. I'm 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 a, I'm a fan
1: of that. I'm gonna start calling it a pissoir. Pissoir, uh, and so. So this pissoir uh, all of a sudden becomes a fountain because the context changed and the storytelling that is attached to that has changed and uh, and I think this is there is absolutely huge lesson for all the marketeers, including the ones that are dealing with brown spirits and unfortunately, oftentimes they only think of age, they only think of some of these uh, rare casts, all of that but what is important is symbolically giving people what they need so the values that you could attach to that and all of that. and of course it's much more difficult to do because it's much easier to wait for another 10 years so that your 40 year old becomes 50 year old, all of that and uh, in and in the end, of course there are people who could pay uh, a lot of money for for these things, but for me, this is not uh, this is not the way how I would uh, I would do marketing. I think that it is really creating very intangible layer of values uh, to the brand, and I think that's what we uh, are trying to do with Tense Muse Vodka, uh, You know, associating it very strongly with the world of art, and uh, and also myself, I'm uh, a big uh, fan of uh, art, and with a very humble parenthesis, also a little bit of an artist. So, uh, yeah, and I think that we learn a lot from artists about storytelling and the value of storytelling. So with my long answer to your question, uh, it is selling this expensive whiskey and all of that. You need to work on uh, storytelling and uh, you need to uh, make the reality of the brand very beautiful so that people would desire it and be ready to part with your money. Because the minute you want something, the price is the uh, limitless, you know. And, and
0: when you think about, you you talked a lot about recontextualizing the way in which we perceive a brown spirit. And I know you've worked with Shivas. That was a brand that was early on in your marketing career. Did you already have this idea related to brown spirits? Vis a vis art, or was that something that came to you later? Like when you think about the way in which you reposition Shivas, were you already using some of those methodologies that you just spoke about with this
1: unnamed bottle of whiskey, or is this a more recent phenomenon? No, I think, uh, well, I was more uh, specifically in charge of the most prestigious uh, brand of Shivas Brothers, which is called Royal Salute, and in fact. I have been uh, dropping a little uh, tear recently because uh, Royal Salute has been created by Sam Bronfman for the coronation of the Queen Elizabeth II. And recently, uh, of course, she died and uh, all these memories working on this brand. Did you crack open a bottle? Like, what did you do when the queen died? Or, what
0: did you choose to sip on? What bottle of spirits or bottle of wine got cracked open that day? Actually,
1: now I regret that I haven't uh, when, I, when I got the news. But uh, I think uh, still uh, I could drink to the good health of uh, Charles uh, III, who is, uh, to be honest... My favorite royal from... uh, Why is he your favorite? What about him appeals to you? First of all, I have to say that there is uh, something uh, interesting about these Charleses that they have. My absolutely favorite, favorite royal of all the royals is Charles I, who unfortunately uh, was beheaded, as you know. One of the reasons why he was a little bit hated uh, was that he spent more money on art than on war. Uh, something that Chuck
0: was ahead of his time. He was
1: very much ahead of his time. Uh, I would wish that both Biden and Putin would spend more money on art than on on these rockets and stupid things that kill people. And so, so that is uh, a little link to the Charles the First. But I think that, but he was also one of the uh, first protagonists of uh, sustainability. He he was a real visionary in this uh, in the sense. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to to, uh, what uh, he's uh, going to show us. And uh, I don't know, I think that nowadays uh, people are afraid of saying this, but uh, I love the idea of constitutional monarchy. I think that that is uh, not uh, a stupid idea. I think uh, having somebody like the queen who could embody the spirit of nation, somebody who is there, who is not changing. In the world in which we live, you know, Zygmunt Bauman, the British sociologist, used to say that we live in liquid times because technological progress is changing much faster than our capacity to adapt to it. Secondly, because of all the uh, traditional institutions uh, that we're used to, such as, you know, family, church, political system, all of that, it is all falling apart. I mean, just look at all the scandals uh, linked with Catholic Church. Look at all the uh, all the politicians we have and the absolute uh, zero trust that we have in them all over the world. Uh, there was one uh, good in Germany and uh, even her. <laughs>
0: Friend of the pod, Angela Merkel, we know you're listening.
1: So, um, you know, and family, uh, there is no family anymore. Everybody's uh, divorced uh, multiple times and all of that. So there, there is absolutely zero anchor in uh, our life. And so having some kind of anchor that stays, because I, I really believe that we need to have some uh some roots we cannot
0: be rootless. so having like a symbolic individual there that we can all kind of whether it's aspire to or look up to more of a kate middleton than a Meghan markle type
1: yeah exactly uh, somebody who doesn't need to steal first of all because they they already have uh some money somebody who doesn't need to prove because you see all of these uh, politicians, they all have to prove they're excellent, they're this, they're that, they're playing with populism. I mean, it's all the same, you know, the French politicians, the British, Jesus Christ, you know, all of them, they they look like kind of these uh, very pity uh, personages, you know, in comparison to somebody who is there who you know does not change doesn't uh yeah she was in it for the long haul the queen she was there for a long time and i and i think we we need this we need somebody around us who assures some kind of continuity uh transmission of values uh reassurance uh i mean you have some armenian background uh, and uh you know, very well, the role of uh, matriarchal figures in uh, Armenian family, this kind of, you know, Armenian babushka. My, my grandma, she was a benevolent dictator, for sure. It, it, it was the same in my family. I think that on the surface, it is very uh, macho culture and all of that. But in reality, when you see at home, it was always this matriarchal figure of uh, grandma, and symbolically, uh, nations uh, might need uh, somebody like her. It's
0: like it's like any other form of luxury. It's
1: aspirational. Exactly. Right? Exactly. It's aspirational. You cannot touch very much. No touchy. No touchy. No, no. Yes, exactly. Especially with COVID. So anyway, I'm not in contact with uh, my Royal Salute friends but uh, uh, anymore. But I hope they launch a whiskey dedicated to Charles III. That'd be the collab to do for sure.
0: For for listeners at home, you're based in Paris, but you also spend your summers in Normandy. And while we're on the topic of brown spirits, Normandy is known for Calvados, which I think is a challenging spirit. It's not necessarily super well-known outside of France. In the US, it's typically maybe used in more of a dessert preparation or it's served alongside dessert. It's not really consumed on its own. How would you think about Normandy and Calvados and kind of branding that uh, to to a
1: larger audience. That that is a brilliant question. That is a brilliant yeah. question. I think first of all, uh, Normandy is uh, is a beautiful place, largely unknown. I think of all the departments in France, uh, this is something that doesn't have the cachet of attractivity that, uh, let's say, Côte d'Azur has or Bordeaux or... Well, it's big too. Isn't Normandy massive? I I think it's the, if I'm not mistaken, probably the biggest or one of the biggest uh, uh, departments. It is the motherland uh, because the the climate is absolutely incredible. The temperature is very, uh, uh, very delicious. Uh, It rains from time to time still, Uh, so a lot of grass. the The earth is very rich and very easy to cultivate. So in my garden, I'm a very keen gardener. Got four green thumbs. Yeah, almost anything I plant there growing like crazy. And it's also the motherland to many cheeses. Uh, You know, like most of the cheeses that we shout out: Camembert, Camembert, and. uh, uh, Livaro, and uh, you know, all these uh, kind of big iconic uh cheeses, but not a place that's known for
0: wine, right? I mean, you've got cider, you've got really great dry ciders that are made there from pears or apples. We have
1: amazing cider, but because the apples, I mean, believe it or not, the my apartment is now, I mean, I can show I've got like cases of apples, uh, oh, just apples, here.
0: not even apple cider, just the apples yeah, themselves.
1: The, oh, you see. <laughs> You see oh, that is, is
0: truly a bushel of apples you have there. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, 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 yeah. So... For listeners at home, there were about 100 apples that were just shown on screen in a wicker basket. Are you making your own cider? Are you brewing your own uh, cider at home? you going to distill that into some Calvados, little uh, moonshine?
1: Oh, they're, they're too delicious. Too delicious uh, to do that. No, no, we're doing. Um... Uh, kind of uh, confiture and uh, some apple pies and things like this. And just going back to a question why this is the case, because I think Normandy is not very popularized. Uh, the drink is uh, is not very uh, well promoted. It's very humble. It, it exists, though, I have to say, If you drink a very good-aged Calvados, 12 or 15-year-old and all of that, I mean, Jesus, this is better than uh, some of the cognacs. So I think uh, I wait uh, when uh, one of the producers uh, is going to call me to work on branding. But definitely, there is a niche. I think nowadays, when people are looking for some kind of interesting propositions, all of that, it's a beautiful story that uh, we can tell. And uh, I imagine that with a lot of different spirits, Marketing teams will try
0: and utilize that spirit in a cocktail setting, that that will be kind of the gateway point to introduce people to that product, whether that's tequila for margaritas, and then eventually you get people on board with sipping it neat, or with whiskey, for instance, maybe it's a highball in a Manhattan, and then that leads to something else. I'm thinking of St. Germain being just like a flavoring ingredient in elderflower spritzes and martinis, can you think of any cocktails that are made with Calvados or anything like that?
1: Well, to be honest, uh, myself, I, I drink it uh, straight. But I uh, I think it would be absolutely beautiful with something like ginger yeah. ale, you know. Uh, super easy, uh, uh, just uh, ice, lemon uh, zest and... Uh, Calvadas and some ginger ale uh, from Fever Tree or something like this.
0: So we talked a little bit earlier about art. We spoke about Marcel Duchamp. And I know that you were really involved with Absolute's campaign. And there's always been a very strong relationship between Absolute and art. For listeners at home that maybe aren't as familiar with that um, artistic connection between Absolute and art, maybe you can talk a little bit about that
1: process. Uh, First of all, I think not many people know that brand, well, was launched in uh, 1979 and was not successful at all in the beginning. The real success started when... The brand approached uh, Andy Warhol, uh, who is uh, another founding father of contemporary art. By the way, for those who uh, would like really to know the three fathers that exist, so the first one is Marcel Duchamp, the second one would be Joseph Beuys, the German uh, artist, and the third one would be Andy Warhol, but who is more famous uh, and all of that. And so... Once uh, uh, the brand started collaborating with him on imagining the, uh, you know, the the advertising, w- which which was simply asking the artist to draw their interpretation of the bottle, so something that today would wouldn't be even possible. The eighties was the time of the uh, pop art and all of that, so a lot of artists such as Andy Warhol were interested in such uh, collaboration and so then it started really booming A- and it was you understand uh, way before uh, the brands such as Vuitton or chanel and all of that they started collaborating with artists and especially being engaged uh, in contemporary art so absolute was really i would say historically speaking probably the brand that uh, maybe was not the first to work with contemporary artists because there were some others uh, even before. I think uh, BMW engaged uh, Andy Warhol one or two years before. But for them, it was anecdotal. This was meant more as a
0: partnership. It wasn't just meant to give him some free drinks at Studio 54 or something
1: or just like to have his name attached to it. It was really meant to be a partnership. And then he introduced, by the way, to his, of course, to his circle, to Keith Herring. To uh, Basquiat, Uh, Basquiat unfortunately uh, refused to to do things uh, because his father was an alcoholic and all of that. But now his work, Basquiat's work you see everywhere now, right?
0: Like infamously used in that Tiffany campaign campaign whatever it was last year right i mean it seems like his work has grown in ubiquity just in the past like two or three years now you go to uniqlo and you can get a basquiat t-shirt like i don't know it, it just seems like a bit overplayed at this
1: point yeah maybe maybe but uh but at that time uh well now he's a major historical artist all of that at that time he was like a super cool uh, artist. And of course, uh, it would be great if he did something for Absolute. But since that collaboration, Absolute did more than 850 uh, collaborations with artists and almost like all the big names of today, either live or dead, they all did something with uh, Absolute, Louise Bourgeois, uh, Maurizio Cattelan, Diamond Hearst, uh, Ed Ruscha. From what I understood really working closely with the brand is that if Absolute did not have these uh, links with the world of art, I think Pernodic Art would never pay $6 billion for, for the brand. And I think that they did that not because they wanted art and all of that. I don't think so. Uh, because they're pure financially driven people. But it creates subliminally the desire that is translated into financial numbers, uh, all of that. I'm absolutely convinced that contemporary art has this tremendous capacity to... uh, Create value. So, when you were helping to implement that absolute art initiative
0: back in like 2013, 14, and 15, how did you reconcile that inherent
1: friction between art and commerce? You have to be uh, very genuine. You have to work with authenticity, uh, with integrity, uh, but also really kind of understanding the world of art, understanding the world of artists, uh, understanding the uh, where the art world is today, what is possible, what is not possible, understanding all these very fine lines. And at the same time, let's not forget that artists do need uh, commerce. They are also commercial entities. They need to exist. They need to pay their uh, roof and uh, board, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. But they, they do that with an integrity. They are not going to be prostitutes. So and and uh, they should not be treated as such for me what was important that i really immerse myself into the world of art i have absolutely zero background i am uh, educated as a rocket scientist and then uh, as a as a marketeer at insead uh, and all of that so for me it was very important to learn about the ecosystem of contemporary art and uh, when we started collaborating uh, with such a prestigious institution such as Documenta 13, for those who don't know, this is the most important exhibition, contemporary art exhibition in the world. It uh, happens in Kassel. Probably most of you have never heard of that. Uh, is the city in the middle of uh, Germany, uh, but that hosts this uh, absolutely gorgeous uh, exhibition, very important, that defines... Uh, basically the trajectory of contemporary art for years to come. Uh, It happens every five years. So it has uh, the biggest budget, one of the biggest budget than all the Biennales uh, of the world. And they have five years instead of two to uh, work on the proposition, all that. So the the quality usually is uh, uh, really good. Though this year, I've got some question marks. But anyway- Don't you
0: also work with Art Basel though? Haven't you done consulting work with them as well?
1: Uh, well, I got to know them as part of the commercial proposition, commercial development of Absolute. So we did uh, a lot of uh, sponsorship, meaningful sponsorship of Art Basel at different uh, venues in Miami, in uh, Hong Kong, in uh, Basel. That sounds like a lot of work, man. I don't know how you manage that. I mean, I got a chance to go to Basel
0: Basel this year, back when I was in Switzerland. But uh, yeah, I mean, just the energy in that space was really exciting. I can't imagine putting something on in that space. It's got to be pretty busy, pretty hectic. Uh,
1: It was not uh, like a really cheap marketing exercise. Like, unfortunately, most brands that sponsor Basel uh, do, they uh, sometimes do their kind of stand as a, as uh, another shop inside the art fair, which I find completely stupid. You have to create, you have to bring something that is first of all, related to the world of art uh, in, in, a, in a cool way. So that's why when we were giving the uh, car blanche to different artists to create uh, a bar, for absolute that was uh, something very cool and even till today people still remember these uh, venues and uh, all of that so so that was that was really big learning experience for
0: me i had the opportunity to dig through your archives a little bit and i came across some pretty wild uh, photos from you launching a tequila brand in russia um, Olmeca,
1: I think was the name of the brand. Well, what is it like to launch a tequila brand in Russia? Well, at the time, it, it was quite interesting because uh, today Olmeca is uh, is kind of maybe not in the US, but uh, in Europe, it's definitely a very important brand in uh, many markets. And But at the time, it was basically completely unknown. And, and so... Uh, uh, what we did in Russia at the time was kind of putting the brand on the map, uh, fundamentally. So there were a lot of events. Uh, I developed this system of uh, activation for the brand that would include, uh, you know, something very low level at multiple bars. Uh, at that time, it was it was still a little bit, uh, I think, bling bling era. So we had these commandos of beautiful girls going from uh, uh, bar to bar and uh, with custom-designed clothes. And uh, for for that time, uh, probably today that wouldn't work, but for that time, that was quite uh, catchy. And then going to the very upscale and very kind of prestigious events, including the ones that we did in France, because a lot of people are traveling to France, especially at Côte d'Azur, and it's a good time to have margaritas. One of the events, yes, was was with Isaiah uh, Argente and uh, I got to
0: imagine it gets pretty rowdy. You're uh, in the French Riviera, you're partying it up. The margaritas are flowing. I mean, you had to have seen some crazy shit. It had to have been a pretty wild time.
1: That well, that that was. Uh, so, for example, that shot probably that you have seen on the internet. So I was standing uh, with her behind the DJ set and as Argento, again, for those who don't know, she's a very cool uh, kind of bohemian uh, personality, uh, the daughter of very famous movie director Dario Argento. So uh, I was standing uh, with her behind the DJ, uh, DJ booth and all of that. And uh, there were like all of a sudden all the paparazzi came and, uh, <laughs> and etc. And so she said, give me a bottle of uh, Olmeca. So I gave her. She drank from the bottle.
0: There we go. I uh,
1: got the gulp. And can you imagine? I mean, again, maybe today it would be too much, but that was the the times. No, for sure. And, uh, and then she took away the bottle and kissed me in, in my mouth. I was like, wow. <laughs> so in fact, Everybody, uh, I even could Vadim, not.
0: that might have been the kiss that killed Anthony Bourdain. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, luckily, it was not, it was a little bit controlled by our PR at the time. But so the, uh, it's funny
0: because, like, um, in America, right, we have a very strong cultural tradition of consuming tequila, much in the way the French have Ricard, Italy has their Campari. There's like a tradition tethered to this beverage. And in the US, we have that with tequila. And I wonder how you translate that. Um, something that we've grown up with here in the U.S., how you bring tequila and everything it represents to these other countries.
1: Well, I uh, really tried not to follow the cliches of what tequila would represent. So it was never uh, kind of mariachi, sombrero style, you know? like And then, like, super contemporary DJs. All the DJs that were, uh, like, super important at the time, like Bob Sinclair or uh, David Guetta, etc. They all play that. My part is, is really finding some inspiration in the Mexican culture, but doing that in a contemporary way that resonated at the time. Again, for today, that wouldn't be enough. But uh, at the time, that worked.
0: Well, all of these things, your work with Shivas, your work with Omeka, it all feeds into you becoming the global director of creativity and luxury for Pruno Ricard. And you're doing this on a global level. And I think what's interesting is every culture has a different association with those two words, creativity and luxury. And thinking about managing a house of brands, having all these different brands that represent different cultures, and then selling or marketing those different cultural heritages in other places, it had to have been a really challenging role. Uh,
1: yes, but I think that what you said is a little bit of uh, a spirits convention. I think that uh, in reality, uh, the more we go up uh, on the ladder, uh, the more luxury uh, the drink is or the brand I think we find uh, many more similarities and and this is partly very sad because all the marketing uh, and the history of marketing uh, which by the way unfortunately the INSEAD and other business schools do not uh, teach but I think they should have uh, they should uh it it, it shows us that the marketing was built on how do we find little differences between the people and exploiting these differences. And I find this is, first of all, very sad because it's exploiting the superficialities. You know, I've got little hair and like this, you have more hair yeah, but you sure. just got a
0: buzz cut. When we chatted earlier this summer, your hair was longer. This looks like a recent change for you. Yeah,
1: but okay, that's you've true, got but...
0: you've got some Armenian curls nestled deep within so, you. I know I've it. I've got
1: a little bit, a little. You got bit that Armenian curl going. I know but, it. But, but the brands learn how to uh, market uh, even to us that fundamentally are the same different products. You know, uh, to say that because you have these hair uh you need this type of shampoo blah 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 though jesus uh you know oh the shampoo for men and this is a shampoo for women yeah and if i use the female shampoo uh my skin will go red or no it's total bullshit so so everything is done on this exploitation of little differences and i think that The luxury marketing and in general, the marketing of the future is about how we can uh, find the the things that are in common between the people and how we could address these commonalities. And I think this is a much more interesting, first of all, exercise, uh, more difficult. And yet one thing that uh, is absolutely striking for me is that if I take the your dna and my dna there is zero difference okay you would say because uh, armenian origin blah 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 no you take anybody from the street anybody and there is 99.99 the same dna with the fly a fly that you would like to you know uh, slam on the uh annoying fly like this shout out jeff goldblum yeah the fly 60 60 dna is the same 60% 60% with a fly, you, you, Jesus. The size, these eyes, wings, all of that, 60% the same DNA. So going back to your question, the luxury brands, in uh, they they managed to exploit or, or to reveal and, and appeal to the common traits of the people. You know, that's why Chanel is absolutely fantastically popular in Asia, but also in the US. But also in Russia, in the UK, even in Armenia, for those who have money and etc. etc. Cetera, et cetera. So, so I think that because they appeal to the uh, what I call the the human insights and human insights, uh, the fundamental human insights, they're similar across the geographies. Of course, there are some little differences, all of that, but fundamentally, the expression of these values that are common could be slightly different. Yes, okay, you can drink uh, whiskey uh, instead of ginger ale with green tea in uh, in China. But how dissimilar it is, to be honest, nothing. If you think tea is also a little bit uh, you know uh, could be thought of as some kind of ginger ale in the in the East, you know, why not? So it's not that dissimilar. It's not that dissimilar. Again, uh, yes, I worked internationally and I tried as much as I could uh, bring that philosophy. There is an Italian artist, Michelangelo uh, Pistoletto. He's one of the leading artists uh, of Arte Povera movement that uh, happened uh, mostly in Italy in the 70s, 80s, 90s. So, uh, I, I I really love this uh, phrase of Michelangelo Pistoletta that says, Eliminare lo dis- uh, distanze mantenendo differenze. So, eliminate the distance while keeping the difference. This is for me the most amazing principle of life, of treating other people and enjoying the, basically what he says, eliminate the distance. You know why do we uh you know uh why do we try to uh really focus oh this is this nationality this is that nationality this is this origin this is that origin like all of that I mean Jesus it's, it's life is too short for all that bullshit but we are. We and unfortunately, marketers are responsible for that because you're black, you need this because you're uh Asian, you need that, but you know, for you need different this, different all, all of seeing that. the so, differences rather than seeing the similarities, exactly. Yeah. And so, he says. Uh, eliminate the distance while keeping the difference because difference is also beautiful i'm not saying let's all be dressed in the same way let's all eat the same food let's all drink the same drinks and all that no i love the fact that in europe we can travel and just with a little bit of distance you go oh my but even in france in you what you eat in normandy is not what you eat in in Alsace, is not what you eat in Pirates uh, or when you go down tzaganaki. south. Or... So, so this is the beauty. To say nothing of the fact that you go to Spain, to Greece, to this, that, uh, and all that. I burned my hands with by, while doing the tzaganake. Uh, uh, we have so many cheeses in France, but yet I love feta, and yet I love mozzarella, and and this is all beautiful. So, so that and that is what is the message of uh, pistoletto. So eliminate the distance while keeping the difference because keeping the difference is enjoying the difference.
0: Do you think like Web 3.0, this movement towards like the metaverse and cryptocurrency, is that following in Michelangelo's principle? Are we eliminating distance with that technology?
1: I think, yes. I think uh, at least uh, there is a hope. At least there is a hope because it allows a more smooth, Connectivity to the people, cryptos, as we know, don't know the borders uh, and which which is absolutely great. Uh, the and metaverse again, if it is done in the way or used in a way that allows, uh, you know, uh, for for this kind of enjoyment, then it's uh, fantastic, though, I have to say, these are the tools. And the tools are programmed and used by the people. And so they reflect, unfortunately, all the good elements, but also all the bad elements of people. So there will be some um, uh, negative manifestations of human nature. You know, it's the same as artificial intelligence, because artificial intelligence is as uh, intelligent as the people who uh, create it. And they train it on some examples. And so it has... um, I have been a part of the think tank uh, uh, at Jesus College in Cambridge University about uh it was just before the the covid and, and the the thought was uh, kind of the topic was uh, thinking about artificial intelligence and culture how the two uh, come together uh, and all of that and so uh we, we we saw and there were some presentations there that you know the same biases, Uh, gender biases or uh, sexual biases or or religion biases and all that. They exist in the artificial intelligence. Why? Because it is done by the people, you know, because... uh, The codes written by us, While they program, they also train them on certain examples, on certain things, on certain uh, approaches and all of that. I really believe that uh, the ha- having the independent money mechanisms. I think it is good. It is uh, something that uh, is at least not prone to, you know, influence from uh, governments and all of that. Well,
0: look, we've covered a lot of ground. We've talked about art. We've talked about crypto. We've talked about Duchamp's urinal. We've talked about uh, tequila. I mean, is there anything else you want to let people know? Anything that we didn't touch on that you'd want to make sure listeners find out? You know, we,
1: we, we talked about art uh, and uh, I don't want that uh, people have this idea of art as an instrument for brand development, which it is. But for me, most important uh, function of art is to help uh, us to search for meaning. Uh, and by us, I mean people. I also mean brands uh, and and also mean the clients of of the brands. And I think that um, also uh, I saw how my life changed when I uh, allowed uh, myself to immerse into contemporary art, again, without any formal education and all of that. Uh, my life has become much more meaningful and much more interesting, and uh, <clears throat> and I think that uh, um, it, it 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 is the most democratic social elevator, you know, of all. You know, it allows uh you to grump the. Uh, the staircase uh, the social staircase better than anything and it doesn't cost much it, it, but it can it be cost... intimidating right like for someone that maybe doesn't know a lot
0: about art and maybe they're interested in learning more like it can be in daunting subjects uh it can be challenging right like what would Ooh, what that... advice would you give to someone that that's in that position
1: I I I, th- I think uh, uh, we need to understand that uh, contemporary art uh, is also a language, and uh, like with any language or with any other language skill or any other skill, uh, we have to spend time learning it. You know, I remember when uh, I was doing a lot of uh, events in Kurshevell for Martel. And Courchevel, as you know, is one of the best uh, ski resorts, uh, all of that. And I was going the first year, the second year, the third year. And then people say, Vadim, why you don't ski and all of that. So I I bought all the equipment, uh, expensive things, went and uh, it was horrible. It was like super difficult, unpleasant, you know. Yeah. Uh, because I didn't train myself. I didn't give time to train myself uh, to enjoy skiing. You, you know, went straight the same... from the bunny hills to the black diamond. Exactly. And so this is painful. This is uh, unpleasant. And and the same happens with the people that, uh, you know, for the first time come and see, uh, I don't know, the, uh, the the work of Basquiat, you know, uh, uh, they could say, "Oh, but my son uh, could have done that bullshit." You know, your son would never da- do that. Uh, and and, uh, and you need to understand why uh, art came to that uh, level and 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 came to express what it expresses. You got to learn their...
0: the rules in order to break them. You know
1: exactly. And so my advice would be: first of all, uh, uh, get interested in art. Go to the exhibitions wherever you, uh, whenever you can. Read. All the bloody things that uh, and, and seemingly boring things that are on the walls, get this app that now museums they all uh, give, uh, listen, and then you will see. Uh, you know, discuss with your friends, discuss with maybe more knowledgeable people in your circle, read, uh, you know, the weekend sections of New York Times or Financial Times, uh, things like this, or the New Yorker. Uh, that they give very, very good, uh, you know, uh, overviews of all kind of uh, contemporary art things and uh, in a very accessible language. And and then you will see that all of a sudden, after some time, it's like the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, they, they come into place. It becomes much easier uh, and much more enjoyable uh, in the end. And, and, and you will be on this kind of endless... Um, Uh, path of searching for meaning. I'm not sure you can find it, maybe, but at least the process becomes much more enjoyable. And in the age where we, uh, as I said, going back to Zygmunt Bauman, lost all the anchors, all of that, that contemporary art is the place where we can find these answers. So that would be my advice. Get into contemporary art. Love it. Cool. Well,
0: Vadim, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your rosé. I've got this nice bottle of Armenian orange wine here that I'll be... Wow! Wow! Toravank! Yeah, I brought this back from Yerevan when I was there. You can see in Armenia, they still require um, Russian and Armenian on uh, the back label.
1: On the back label. Well, that's that's really great. It looks uh, good with my... Kelvin Klein, uh, Orange. Oh, yeah, uh, baby. Well, I wish we would be together uh, and share it together, but. Uh, we'll crack but open yeah. a
0: bottle next time I'm in Paris, which hopefully will be soon, so. With with great pleasure. Awesome, man. I'll see you around. Cheers.
1: the crazy shit I did be the best